welcome to the Conversations That Matter podcast. My name is John Harris. For those who've listened to this program for any length of time, you know that every once in a while I reel it back, I step back, and I want to take a look at the whole enchilada. <laughs> I like to get a bird's eye view of the cultural moment we're in and why things are the way they are. I want to see how the sausage is made. And that's what drives the academic pursuit uh, of, of people. They want to find answers to questions. That's what, what drives me in having conversations, uh, whether it's the monologues or the interviews that I do. I want to figure out what's going on. I want to answer questions. And, um, and so today's no different. We're going to be doing some investigation. I'm going to give you some, some of my own thoughts. Uh, some of them I've given before. Some of them I'm giving in a different way. Some of them might be new. But uh, the goal is to take a step back and look at everything that's going on in front of us and ask, ask yourself, why, why is everything playing out the way it is? I know there's a lot of different streams that you can look at to try to explain what's going on. Marxism, liberation theology, which is Christianized Marxism, feminism, uh, the utopianism of like a Fabian socialist like H.G. Wells, uh, and, and globalism, you know, being part of that. Um, you can look at the critical theories. You can go back to the original Frankfurt School critical theory. You can look at uh, Foucault and Derrida and uh, Heidegger and some of the postmodernists. Um, there's, there's just a lot of different ways that you can look at what's going on. You could look at, go all the way back to Jean-Jacques Rousseau and uh, the French Revolution, and you can, you can certainly trace the line. That's really kind of where I trace it from a lot of it. But, you know, Solomon said it best. He said, there's, there are no new ideas under the sun. There's, there's nothing new. There's fancy packaging. There's complicated packaging. But the ideas before us are uh, nothing new. And, um, and we're seeing a social justice movement, broadly speaking, which encapsulates a lot of the things I just talked about, uh, getting married to the Great Reset and globalism and this totalitarianism that's coming. And, and, and there's examples of this throughout history, not just the communist regimes, but you could look at fascist regimes. Uh, I've called the um, cancel culture and, and the speed at which it moves uh, the, um, a, a cultural blitzkrieg because that, that's what it seems like, that's what it feels like. Um, everyone has a different way of explaining this and different terms are used. You, you, you know, if you listen to me long enough, I like to say the social justice religion. That's what I call this whole thing. We're, we're dealing with a, a religion, and I think that um, accounts for the behavior more than any other way to look at it. Uh, but other people have other ways of looking at it. And so I want to take a step back, and I want to just analyze kind of where are we at. And I'll, I'll use uh, maybe some representative examples um, so, so it won't get boring. <laughs> it won't, trust me. Um, but I, I want to uh, go, I'm gonna, I'll just tell you where the plane's going to land. There's an article at the end of this whole thing, which uh, is called, um, if I can find it here, Why is Wokeness Winning by Andrew Sullivan? Why is Wokeness Winning by Andrew Sullivan? And this was published in October of 2020. So it's not, not new in that sense. Um, but I, I want to go over that at the end and, and answer that question. Why is Wokeness Winning? Why does it seem that way? So let's start um, with this. This is uh, something that's interesting, a little trend. Jordan Peterson tweeted this out from the American National Election Studies. 
And it's uh, a, gra- some, a series of graphs from 2016 and then some from 2020 with different political categories from very liberal to very conservative. And in this uh, graph, this is what I want to point out more than anything else. Uh, the um, Look at the very liberal, which is right here. I'm going to blow this up for you. From 2016, 86.9% thought it would be wrong. It, w- it, w- it would not be justified for people to use violence to pursue their political goals. Wasn't a good thing. 86.9%. We're in 2020, 66.5%. So among those who describe themselves as very liberal, only 66.5% think it's wrong to use violence. Um, you can see this this trend also with the liberal, it, it changed slightly. I think very liberal is where you see the most significant change. Um, some of the others, you know, interestingly enough for conservatives, it seems to go up. They're more against using violence now than they were in 2016. 94.2% of somewhat conservative, actually it cut off, I'm not sure where very conservative is, but they're all in the 90s, they're all very high. So there, there seems to be a trend here where violence is more acceptable, at least to the left. And that is significant. Why is that significant? I, I think because we're on a, it's a holy war. It's a crusade um, that they're on right now. This is not political in the traditional sense that you might think of political. This is bleeding over into religion, and I've talked about this before. So Jordan Peterson uh, talks about this. Um, there's, a, there's a famous, <laughs> now famous, popular little meme going around, and it changes all the time, but it's, it's uh, the cancel culture heaven. So you see all these different characters, um, there's Aunt Jemima, right? You know, you can't buy that in the store. Land of Lakes, can't get that anymore. You know, all these different characters, uh, sports teams, Mr. Potato Head, and there's Dr. Seuss, you know, answering cancel culture heaven. And um, and, and it just goes to show you, you look at these different uh, motto, you know, or, um, uh, figures here um, and characters and you just brands, you know, you think, what's so offensive about some of this? You know, why? And, and of course, Cat in the Hat, I don't think is canceled. It's, you know, this is symbolic, but it's, it's other Dr. Seuss books. But, you know, why? Why, you know, um, this actress over here uh, was canceled because she, uh, I, I believe the, the straw that broke the camel's back was questioning the integrity of the election. If I'm not mistaken, you have, um, you know, portrayals of Native Americans. Uh, you know, you shouldn't, shouldn't portray them, I guess, in a positive light. I'm not sure why that's, it's so offensive though. Um, you know, uh, Mr. Potato Head. I don't even remember why Mr. Potato Head, why was it, was it because of the transgender stuff? I don't even remember now. It's just, um, <laughs> it, it, it's gotten, I mean, this is obviously a little sliver of the pie. There's so much more. But uh, here's a headline, Whoopi Goldberg rips cancel culture. I mean, Whoopi Goldberg of all people, right? Very liberal. Uh, I mean, she's been on the other end of the cancel culture, but now she's ripping it because it's targeting Pepe Le Pew, the Warner Brothers cartoon character. And she says, I don't know why you've got to erase everything. Why do you have to? You can't put Pepe Le Pew in Space Jam 2 because of, I guess, rape culture or something like that. So this is what you have. You have the left is canceling all these things. I mean, they're, they're stripping the landscape. And at the same time, they are more... Um, uh, more supportive of the, the use of violence. Now, uh, Michael Youssef is a pastor um, in Georgia, I believe. 
And he has some words recently, some warning, and it was very refreshing to hear him do this, be, uh, hear that he did do it, because so many pastors are caving to the woke mob. And Michael Youssef isn't one of them. And I think, you know, it's just interesting, uh, you know, there's some other clergymen who have done similar, I think of like Rodney Howard Brown, who grew up in South Africa. Well, Michael Youssef grew up, and by the way, that's not a statement that I endorse all, you know, I know some people think if I mention someone positively, I endorse everything about them, and I don't with Rodney Howard Brown. I'm just saying, um, you know, someone who grew up in a Marxist context and is so against what they're seeing. Uh, Michael Youssef, similar. He, he grew up, I believe, in Lebanon, born in Egypt, raised in Australia to some extent. But here's what he says. And, and he compares what's going on now to some of the battles that he saw growing up in uh, the Anglican, I guess, denomination I think he was part of, over, like, homosexuality and this kind of thing. And this is what he says. Those, ba- those same battles that I fought in the mainline denominations are now invading the evangelical churches. It's the same arguments, the same lingo, and the same words repeating themselves with such precision I am deeply, deeply concerned. He says, bowing to woke culture allows you to avoid rejection by culture and society. It's a very, very popular message that is now being preached from many evangelical pulpits, traditionally Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. We have gone so far that it just grieves me to the point that I literally sometimes just weep tears. He says, critical race theory is a very Marxist ideology that people are taking very seriously. The idea of the oppressed and the oppressors is not that simple. Now, we have private Christian schools here in Atlanta where white children are apologizing to black kids. Apologizing for what? They are innocent. They haven't done anything. It's crazy. It's going, it's just going insane. And it is. And he's right. And, you know, he feels like he's living in the twilight zone, which I think many of you also feel. I feel that way sometimes. And I find it interesting he's comparing this to some of the battles, the battles that took place during really the, the crisis over modernity, uh, the, the, or the modernist controversy, I should call it that, that's more accurate, the modernist controversy. Um, he's saying it's very similar. And um, I mean, the, in the mainline denominations, this wasn't a, a hard jump, you know, to go from, well, you can't really, Bible's not really true, ultimately, objectively, it's, you know, it's got truth in it, it's, it's true in that sense, but it doesn't, it's not like, you know, really true in an objective sense. Like, you know, the flood didn't really happen, that kind of thing. And it wasn't a big jump to go from that to, well, you know, homosexuality is okay. And, um, and he's saying that, hey, I saw this, and uh, now I'm, I'm seeing a, something very similar, at least the social element, and through, through the Black Lives Matter stuff. I mean, that's the critical race theory. So he, he's creating, there's a connection here. And, and, I, and I've said this for a while, you can't separate the homosexual or the LGBTQ plus stuff from the, the BLM stuff. It's the same stuff. It's just, it's going to, to look a little different, but it's, it's changing the labels around and it's going to, it's going to subvert using the same exact tactic. And, and I, I don't think we're prepared because evangelicals for the most part caved on Black Lives Matter. And, you know, some of them want to try to cave on that and they don't see it as caving. They, they want to, join with BLM, but then they think they can somehow uh, also reject the, um, the, the LGBTQ stuff coming into their church. You, you can't. You, you have to make your stand now. And Michael Youssef, I think, somewhat is bringing these things together. Now, I want to show you something else that also brings this together as well. This is, um, is interesting to me. Reverend Brandon Robertson. I don't know where he's a reverend. He's got his collar. Um, 
uh, I, I think he claims to be a homosexual, I believe. He's got a blue check mark on Twitter and 17,000 followers. Here's what he said recently. Check this out. Where Jesus uses a racial slur. In Mark chapter 7, there's the account of the Seraphonician woman, a woman who is Syrian and Greek, both of which there were strong biases against within the Jewish community. And she comes to ask Jesus to heal her daughter who's possessed by a demon. And what is Jesus's response? He says, it's not good for me to give the children's food, meaning the children of Israel's food, to dogs. He calls her a dog. What's amazing about this account is that the woman doesn't back down. She speaks truth to power. She confronts Jesus and says, well, you can think that about me, but even dogs deserve the crumbs from the table. Her boldness and bravery to speak truth to power actually changes Jesus' mind. Jesus repents of his racism and extends healing to this woman's daughter. I love this story because it's a reminder that Jesus is human. He had prejudices and bias, and when confronted with it, he was willing to do his work. And this woman was willing to stand up and speak truth. This individual, I mean, that, that should be absolutely rep reprehensible. I mean, offensive in the strongest possible terms to suggest that Jesus, I mean, first of all, he's wiping away Jesus's divinity there. Jesus sinned in that case. He was wrong. And you have this woman confronting him and uh, speaking truth to power power. I, I know that um, a few of us did say uh, when this whole BLM stuff got started that ultimately you start talking about um, power being such a bad thing and you know racism uh, requires you to have power and Tim Keller for years vilifying uh, or, or it was wrong to try to hold on to power and you start vilifying power that it was going to end up here. The most powerful being in the universe is God himself. And here you have it consistently now being applied to Jesus. That uh, it was somehow, it was wrong, I guess. It was, it was somehow, it's, a, it's like a moral blight to have power. And, and he has all these, this Jewish privilege or male privilege or something. And he uh, uses a racial slur. He's saying Jesus is racist. That's what he's saying. Jesus is racist. But Jesus corrected and learned from that. And that's the good thing. That's what we have to do. This is someone who calls themselves a pastor. And... The, here, here's the shocking part. If you thought that was the shocking part, wait till you see this. This is the person who mentored him or taught him these things, apparently. Uh, uh, Miguel uh, de la Torre, associate professor of social ethics at Florida International University. Well, guess where he got his MDiv from? The Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. That's right, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. That's where Al Mohler is the president. And, you know, I'm not saying Al Mohler's responsible for this. Don't, you know, I'm not being ridiculous like that. But I'm saying this is someone who came from an evangelical institution. And, I mean, he specializes in postmodern and postcolonial social theoretical approach to the U.S. marginalized spaces to construct a theological and biblical ethic that challenges structures of oppression. I mean, he's a liberation theologian and a postmodernist. And he taught at Hope College in Holland, Michigan. Um... He was a Southern, an ordained Southern Baptist minister at Goshen Baptist Church in Glendine, Kentucky. Uh, he did a commentary on Genesis. Um, I mean, it's, he's got a bunch of stuff uh, that he's taught here. Liberating Jonah. I mean, I, I'm wondering, you know, Tim Keller likes to talk about J Jonah in a social justice way. I wonder if that's what that's about. He's got a bunch of publications here. But he's a liberation theologian. And, I mean, he contributed to the, the Handbook on U.S. Theologies of Liberation. There it is. 
Anyway, without getting into his whole pedigree, here's what he said, and uh, and, and and this is with Robertson, the, the gentleman you just watched in the video saying Jesus was a racist. Here are they together talking. Is that the Canaanites were a despised people. These were the half-breeds. These were, you know, Jews uh, who, who stayed behind after the Assyrian um, um, occupation, and then they intermingled with other people, and they were looked down upon for being a mixed group, a mixed race, kind of like the way Latinos are looked down upon now. Sure. So th there are some connections there that make the story come alive. For those of us who um, can, can truly understand what it means to be the Canaanite woman, mm. to, you know, to have Jesus say, I'm sorry, but you're a dog, and I'm not going to give you this. Now, of course, not only a dog, but a female dog. So, I mean, even the, the, the word may have been a little stronger than, than, than the cleanup version that we're using. All right, so the suggestion there is that Jesus is using not only is he a racist, but he's also using dirty language. And, of course, they're missing the, the, the whole point of the story and the whole prophetic significance of Jesus, why, why he came to earth, why uh, the nation of Israel was chosen from among the nations of the world, and Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Um, he actually showed an incredible amount of mercy to this woman. And it's... Um, they don't even get into the interplay of the different words for, for dog that are even used there. It's, they have a, pre, uh, a, a preconceived notion about what Jesus was doing, and, and they, I mean, they end up uh, challenging his divinity, um, suggesting that he's morally, you know, did something wrong and, and had to repent somehow of it, I guess. And this is, this is where the woke church stuff is going. This is a guy who's, um, I don't know if he still is, but he was at least an ordained Southern Baptist minister. The video that was currently posted, which is not too long ago, says, says that it makes it sound like it's current, like he is a Southern Baptist minister. So um, that, that's shocking for some of us. Why even be a minister if that's what you believe? Like reject it all or find a different religion or something, right? Uh, of course, they're misinterpreting this all to fit their social justice uh, mindset. Um, but why did I bring you through that? I'm going to bring you, I'm, I'm going to take us through this why is wokeness winning thing, but why did I bring you through that? And it, really it's, it's to make this point. Uh, and I could have probably brought in a lot of other things. The LGBT stuff and the BLM stuff, it's, it's all part of the same soup. And it's going to be used in the same way. The feminist stuff too, it's all, it, it, it's all being used to the, the thing that that these movements have in common is what they're trying to rip down. Western, male-dominated, Christian-dominated, patriarchal society, etc. It's Western civilization, ultimately, that they're going after. Christian civilization. And, and they think it's the source of so many of the problems and the evils in the world. And they're not, they're not putting the shoe on the other foot. They're not looking at... Uh, what, what, what does the world look like without that? I mean, it's only in that context that you can even come up with people who want to rip it down and have the freedom to pursue those ends. But I, I think that the mistake that a lot of evangelicals who are joining with the social justice movement are making is they don't, they're not ready for when this, this wheel turns. And when it's not BLM and it's, it's the same sex attracted stuff, it's the LGBTQ plus stuff. 
they're not, I don't think they're ready for that. And to those who have bought in, who understand where this is going, I mean, to them, they, they've already, they, they've thought through this and they've already created the kind of religion they want. And it's not biblical Christianity. It's not New Testament Christianity. And it does eat away everything else. I mean, you're deconstructing Jesus at, at some point. And yes, as Michael Yusuf says, Marxism's part of this. But the Marxism is using as its uh, way, you know, it's not using to the, obviously the traditional class conflict. It's, it's a cultural Marxism, but it's, it's, it's burrowing in so deep into organizations and religions, etc., that in Christianity, it, it's getting into these, these narrative stories about Jesus, fundamental to the Christian faith, and flipping the whole thing, changing the whole thing, attributing new meaning to it that was never conceived of before. Uh, at least uh, not until very recently. And so it's using this postmodern kind of engine. It's using all sorts of other identity markers. And really, it's anything that will rip down what was there before, what will rip down the, the hegemony, the, 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 uh, the, the patriarchal culture that was so oppressive, apparently. Um, anything, any tool that will be used to rip that down is acceptable. And, and this is the kind of world I just don't know that most, most evangelicals are thinking through it. They're so focused on uh, a, a, a narrative that's a lie that, oh, you know, it's the police are, are hunting down black people, etc. They're so focused, though, on that, that emotional kind of um, uh, what, what that does to them, that emotional reaction of how horrible it is to watch someone like George Floyd die. And it is horrible. They're so focused on that. They, they become uh, used by the social justice side. And, and, and when they're that compromised, they, they can almost get into a position where, you know, they, 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 they can, they'll do anything the social justice side wants them to do. And I don't know that they've really realized how far that's going to take them. And I think we're getting little glimpses of, of it right now. And so I just wanted to show you, you those things for that reason. Now, let, let's talk about this. This is the big question. Why is this working? <laughs> Why, why hasn't this stopped? You know, you hear uh, conservatives, um, whether it's, I, I don't know, you even heard like talk radio hosts uh, say things like, well, once they, you know, they find out what it's like to live in, in this Democrat-dominated culture, you know, they'll wake up, they'll see, and it, it's almost like with glee, they, you know, let the left hang themselves by their own rope and show what kind of uh, totalitarian jerks they are, and then everyone will turn on them. And it doesn't ever work like that. <laughs> it doesn't. You have some people that get red-pilled, but ultimately the left marches on, and they gain more converts than they lose, it seems like, for the most part. And and they are, you know, the more power they gain, the more power they gain. That's how it works, until they control everything. That's how this works, guys. Uh, and and so the conservatives who think that, you know, let the left win. This was our election to lose because now everyone's going to really, th they're going to know what it's like to live in a dominated, you know, by the left world. And they're not going to like it. And it doesn't work that way. And I'm just telling you, I mean, I've heard this my entire life just about, and it's never slowed down the left. So people don't seem, some, some wake up, but, but it doesn't seem to slow down the movement. Why, why does it work? Why is the left winning? Well, here's a guy named Andrew Sullivan, and here's what he says about this. He says, why this powerful, seemingly inevitable shift, especially among white elites? The first, it seems to me, is emotional. First reason that people are going this way. Cancel culture and all that. 
The critical race theory advocates have brilliantly managed to construct a crude moral binary to pressure liberals into submission. And he's right. So that's true. You know, you, you're looking at you. You don't want to be a jerk. You don't, you, you know, you look at some, some victim or some victim group and man, you want to help them, right? Well, here's the only acceptable way to help them. And so you, you grab onto it. You latch onto it. The second reason for critical race theory's triumph is that it's super easy. Social inequalities are extremely complicated things when you can simply dismiss all of these factors and cite structural racism as the only reason for any racial inequality and also cover yourself in moral righteousness, you're home free. And he's right about that. Uh, absolutely true. Um, it's when we're a culture that does not think critically anymore. I mean, how many people are even required to take things like logic or rhetoric in school? They're, they're not. Um, then this becomes just an easy, uh, it's a simplified explanation. Then there's the deep relationship between critical race theory and one of the most powerful human drives, tribalism. So he's basically saying that, uh, you know, people identify with people that are like them. And, and here's something I think I could say a lot more about this, but I think the critical theorists understand something about culture that generally conservatives don't. I should say neoconservatives today do not. And, and that goes for most libertarians as well. Conservatives have left culture behind, the conservative movement, if you want to call it that. Um, they don't think through things. They, they think social issues aren't even winning issues most of the time. They, they want to fight fiscal policy or foreign policy or trade policy or something. They don't like getting involved in social conflicts. That's why they, the monument issue... Um, marriage, the marriage issue. I mean, they just capitulated on those two things because it's they don't like those fights. They think they're losing fights. Uh, the gun issue is one that they'll kind of fight, but you know, a lot of a lot of them don't even quite like that. Uh, you know, I'm talking about the uh, the real elites in like the Republican Party. They don't like the abortion issue. They kind of have to go along with that to keep the Christian evangelical vote. Uh, I'm I'm speaking in broad terms. Obviously, there's exceptions to all of this, but in general. Um, culture is not something they don't think in terms of culture and what really motivates people. People are ignited to vote and to get involved because of social things, because we're, we are wired to identify with heroes, uh, with, um, symbols of our past where, where we are wired to, um, I mean, th this is just how when God divided everyone up at Babel, right. And then he assigned the, the boundaries and the, the demarcations where people would live as Acts 17 says. People have things in common, language, region, uh, attachment to the land. Those are very strong. And of course, then family connection. And these things are strong. And, and that's, it's the design of God to do things through families. He's the one that designed the family. And the fam from the family, you have tribe and, and people, culture, etc. cetera. Um, and so to not, you have to take that into account. If you're going to have a political strategy, you have to take those things into account. I think what, you know, critical theorists, they don't understand it quite either because they, they reduce everything down to power. Um, but they still think cult, culture holds a place in their conception of reality. Culture is very important to them because it symbolizes power in their minds. Of course, culture doesn't just symbolize power. That's where they're wrong. And they, they, it's very reductionistic. But culture does hold a place. Culture is important. It's not, it's not just, let me see if I can explain this better. It's not just like abstract principles that you believe, no matter where you are, who you are, um, that, you know, motivate people to do what they do. You know, they're just, I'm going to fight because I'm just for the free market. You know, people don't go to war for that kind of stuff, right? Even, even if free trade is underlying a struggle of some kind, it's because 
I want the freedom for my family and my, I want to grow my own business, for my, my folks to grow their own business, to be able to provide the things that we value because that's the mechanism that is used to provide the things that we value, to take care of our kids, to pass something down to them. That's what motivates people. It's not the free market because of the free market. It's, it's a means to an end. It's not an end in, in and of itself, if that makes sense. And the left understands this. That's why when they market socialism to you, uh, they market it in such a way that they, it's not like we're for socialism. It's no, we're for affordable health care so you can take care of your mom. Oh, goodness, man, I want that. Well, what, what do I have to do? Well, socialism. Oh, okay, that's the mechanism to get there. And, and the other side's just not good at this. <laughs> you know, it's the free market's more efficient. Now, how about marketing it like, you know, you want to take care of your mom and dad. You want those health, the cost to go down so you can do it. Um, free market, right? That, but that's not how the right argues. Uh, I could give a lot more examples of this, but I think th this is, you know, it just spurred my thinking when I read this uh, tribalism. Critical race theory takes advantage of that. It puts people into all these different categories. Now, it does it for artificial reasons, power relationships. I mean, someone in the Appalachian Mountains is white. They don't have power. They're poor usually. So it misdiagnoses some things, but it still breaks the pie up into people. It acknowledges that people have differences and different ways of thinking and different things they value and different religions, etc. And that's true. Social aspirations, he says, also play a part. The etiquette of wokery is increasingly indispensable for high society. And he's right about this too. This is a great point. Um, what he's saying, this is one of the things that I, I've actually had to think about because, um, let me give you an example. Uh, the Columbus Monument in Philadelphia was protected by the Italian-American community there. So the social justice warriors couldn't topple it. In many Southern areas, um, monuments to Robert E. Lee and those kinds of people are coming down because the local population, there are people who want to fight it, but not enough. And they're ostracized and they, you know, they they just won't stick up for that kind of thing as much. At least that's how it seems so far. And one of the things I've thought, because what explains this in my mind? What explains this? I grew up in upstate New York. I grew up around a lot of Italian people. Um, I've lived in the South now for a few years. I have a lot of family from the Deep South, from Mississippi. And I've thought, what, why is it? Why, why is there such a difference in the way the, these, you know, it's the same issue, but why are Southerners not as willing to fight as like the Italians in Philadelphia? And I think the reason for it is this. There is an honor code. I'm not saying Italians don't have any kind of honor code. It's different. But in, in the South, there's an honor code that, that really, if you trace it back, goes back to, to England. And it is a, um, it's the Cavalier. It's uh, the knight, if you want to think about it that way. The, the code. I mean, this kind of got transposed into the code of the West or, you know, the Cowboys code and that kind of thing. But it's this... Uh, basically rules for etiquette, for being gracious, um, for treating other people as more important. And that's why there's more, you know, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. Yes, please, thank you in the South. You know, there's more uh, opening doors and that kind of thing. And I think what the critical race theory paradigm does is it hijacks that and it uses it against the people who have those sensibilities. So you're a jerk, you're, you're evil, you're wrong, but you're also, you have bad manners. Uh, if someone's offended, you don't want to cause an offense. I mean, that's a lot of what manners are about, trying to stop an offense, a social offense from happening. And critical race theory is a cancer on that because it, it's a parasite. It uses that inclination to defeat 
people that have that inclination. It, it uses it against them. So, hey, you have bad manners. How dare you keep us from ripping down your heritage, right? You, what bad manners you have. And then someone's, oh, well, that's part of who I am. I don't want to have bad manners. Okay, okay, sure, good manners. And so they, they use this to neutralize opposition. And so he's absolutely right about this. And then um, he says, there's a little doubt e either, it seems to me, that there is a religious component to wokeness. Bingo, this is where I wanted to get to. A generation of nuns can feel uh, bereft of transcendence and meaning and become woke, like being born again fills that spiritual hole. And here's the, here's the last paragraph. The truth is that liberal democracy is hard, counterintuitive, complicated, and requires self-restraint, reason, and toleration at levels most humans are incapable of. That's why it is such a rare and fleeting exception in the world today and all but non-existent for the vast majority of human history. Critical race theory is much more attuned to human nature. It gives you the simplest template for understanding the world. It assigns you virtue if you assent. It gives you instant power over others purely because of your and their identity, and it requires nothing more than tribal instinct to thrive. That's why it is here to stay, and why the fight for liberalism is going to be long and hard and require as much courage, steel, and rigor as we can muster. And, he, and he's right about that. And let me comment on that. Um, here you can see it. Um, he, he, he's right that this is a religion, absolutely. Uh, and it is filling the spiritual hole that is left by Christianity and Protestantism in, in the United States, at least. It really is. I mean, as the numbers for Christianity go down, uh, you see the rise of this. And in some ways, it's a return, I think, to paganism. But um, the, so, so the counterpoint has been liberal democracy. That's been, we, we got to fight back for a liberal democracy. And, and here's the question I want to ask. I don't know if I necessarily have the full answer to it. But liberal democracy... What, however you conceive of that, but the, what, what's given us uh, civil liberties, free markets, etc. That, that existed in a Protestant society more than anything else. I mean, that's what gave rise to it. In fact, I have a book on my shelf, probably should have grabbed it, uh, by, about John Calvin. And uh, anyway, how it, it kind of traces how demo liberal democracies, I don't even like that word, but the representative republics that guaranteed civil liberties how uh, they came from this uh, Calvinist or Protestant conception of reality. And, and I don't know, how do you get back th those things uh, that liberal democracy has without the religious underpinning that gave rise to it in the first place? That's the question I have. How do you combat this wokeness? Now, in the church, I can give, you know, we open our Bibles and we combat it. Uh, but in general, how, how the, the only way to defeat a true or a, a false religion, the only way to defeat a false religion is with a true religion. I believe that. And right now, I think one of the mistakes that's being made uh, is that how much are we actually fighting for Christian civilization versus liberal democracy? I think that's important. And I think it's important for even those who might not be Christians but want to fight for liberal democracy. If they're going to do it, they have to fight for Christian civilization too. Even if they don't believe it, that's what they would have to fight for in order to keep Western liberal democracy. It doesn't exist in, in a... I mean, why, why? Why should we have several liberties? 
Why should we have free markets? Why should we value, you know, any of the things that have, that are part of a tradition, which, in, which has been, um, which, which Greco-Roman thinking is, is in this tradition, but Christianity plays a pivotal role in it. And there is no answer, I think, apart from, from a Christian foundation. So uh, lots more you could say about it, but I just wanted to, to share that thought, kind of give you the bird's eye view, because I, I, I don't see these issues as separate. LGBTQ, uh, same, you know, um, the, the BLM stuff, feminism, it's all part of kind of, it's, it's the same thing and it's trying to rip down Christian civilization. I think we just got to be honest about this. And the only way to challenge it is to support Christian civilization. Uh, some kind of a neutral liberal democracy where it's just based on reason. There's nothing that's ultimately, reason's a very important tool. We need reason, obviously, part of, uh, Natural revelation gives us the laws of logic, etc., that God has given us. But you can't, um, if man is the measure of all things, you know, man's reason, right? Reason ultimately has to come from God, it has to be transcendent. If, if, if it's going to be man's reason, and through our reason, we're just going to somehow combat this, I think we're, we're in a failing, losing attempt there. The allegiance has to be to something greater than that. It has to be to something transcendent. That applies to everyone. Some, 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 a moral code that goes beyond um, something that's pragmatic. So I've, I've uh, gone almost 40 minutes now, so I'm going to cut the episode off here. I hope that was helpful, uh, and, and or at least it probably spurred a lot of questions in your mind. But I think these are good questions to ask yourself. So um, God bless. Until next time, have a good day. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.